My name is Chris Martin, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Imagine that you went to the doctor complaining of regular headaches. And so the doctor gives you some ibuprofen. You go home, you take the ibuprofen, but the headaches keep coming. So you go and he gives you something stronger, some leave, but the headaches keep coming. So you go and he gives you something even stronger, opioids. And that kind of deals with the problem, although now you have a different mind problem because you're foggy. And a few years pass, you continue like this in life, and you end up going to a different doctor. He says, hey, did you ever do a scan of your head to realize what was happening in there? And you say, oh, no, nothing like that happened. And so he does it, and you discover that you have stage four brain cancer, which could have totally been avoided if your first doctor had looked at the root cause of what was causing your headaches. I think that's kind of what's happened with the social internet or with social media in general. If you look around, the main conversation is around censorship, and that happens on both sides of the political aisle, whether it's concerns about Russian disinformation affecting elections on the left, or it's concerns about social media platforms censoring voices on the right. The main concern is all about censorship, what does or doesn't end up on people's news feeds and their various social medias. And while I think this is really, really important, and it's worth a discussion, It's kind of like talking about headaches when you have brain cancer. What if the truth is that the problems we're seeing with censorship are really just a symptom of a deeper problem, the fundamental ways that social media has been designed by its creators to do things which are destructive to the modern democratic liberal order, to do things which are motivated by a profit mentality, which who's going to wrong someone for that, but which because of those desires for profit have actually fueled outrage and deep psychological anguish. Well, those questions, the deeper questions are exactly the questions that today's guest, Chris Martin, is trying to answer from a Christian perspective. He's the author of a new book, Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And he takes a deep dive into the deep structures of how social media's algorithms, artificial intelligence function, how they gather data and personal information, and how that's used not to service you with great content, but to turn you into a product. I love chatting with Chris. I cannot recommend his book highly enough. He also has an excellent newsletter. It's the exact same name, Terms of Service. You should check it out because, again, if you had brain cancer, you would want to know. And it might turn out that all of us on social media are suffering from a far deeper cancer than censorship. Chris, thanks so much for being back on the show again. 
Sure. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be back and uh, excited to talk about these things. Well, I'm pumped because today we actually get to talk about your book. And last time we were talking about a current event, which was Elon Musk buying Twitter. Now we're recording this well ahead of when people are going to listen to it. So we actually don't know how all that's going to pan out. So it'll be a fun little time warp for anybody listening. But one of the things that I've noticed in the discussion in the news media about social media is that we're fixated on the what. On both the left and the right, we seem to be fixated on the what. So in 2016, we're fixated on the what of Russian interference in the election. In 2020, we're fixated on the what of big tech censoring conservative stories and conservative voices. And of course, you know, I think that these things matter. Everybody agrees that they matter, but they bypass the how and the why. In other words, how has big tech built these social media platforms, these search engine platforms, and why? Why did they build them? What's driving the algorithms behind them? And when we talked last about Elon Musk and Twitter, you had this great line. You said, look, everybody's freaking out about what Elon Musk is going to do to social media, but no one's asking the far more important question, which is what's social media going to do to us? (laughs) What's social media doing to myself? And I think to answer that question, we do have to dive deep into the machinery, if you will, behind big tech's biggest social media platforms. So let's start there. You know, everybody knows that big tech tracks us, that they store our private data, but I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they say, hey, that's just part of living in the 21st century. You know, like a great pedestrian observation for the day. Isn't this just part of digital life? So let's start there. How would you respond to that? Yes, unfortunately, it is just part of digital life as we know it. But just like so many things in life, just because something is doesn't mean it ought to be. One of the biggest pushbacks I get when talking about this, often from Christians, which is just interesting Christians seem to care less about this than other groups that I've spoken with. But one of the biggest pushbacks I get is, well, I don't care about privacy. It's not like I have anything to hide. Like they can have all my data. Like who cares about what my texts say or what my photos are or what my location data is? Like I don't have anything to hide. That's how it always ends. Like I don't really care if they have all this stuff. Like I don't have anything to hide. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, you don't have anything to hide. I get that. But you also close the door when you go to the bathroom. (laughs) But they would say, hey, I've got something to hide there, right? Yeah, right. If I said, hey, we're going to set up a camera surveillance system in your house and, you know, we'll pay you $5 a day even to just like have this camera surveillance system set up in your house and you can like make goofy faces at it. You can do some fun dances and all of this stuff, but it's on all the time and it's in every room of your house. You would be like, no, that's creepy and weird. I'm like, what, do you have something to hide? Well, no, like I don't have anything (laughs) to hide. It's like, well, yeah, but you still care about privacy. So what it's come down to, frankly, Patrick, and I'm going to say this very briefly, but it's something that we could talk about for a really long time. And it's because it's a development that's taken over a long period of time is that giving up our privacy has become the cost of entry of the social internet as we understand it, and the internet as we know it today. We don't pay for 90% of the services that we love to use when we spend time on our phones. Like, you know, you pay for Uber, you pay for DoorDash, whatever, but you're not paying for Twitter, you're not paying for Facebook, you're not paying for Instagram, TikTok, yada, 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 monetarily. My argument that I make both in the book that I wrote and regularly in my writing is that we are paying something. Social media is free, but it still costs something. And we are definitively, without a doubt, paying with our data. When we use these social media platforms, and it depends based on the platform, you have some autonomy over what data you choose to give up. You can post pictures of your kids to social media, or you cannot. You can share your location with Instagram to get features on your stories like location or temperature where you're at or whatever, or you can choose not to. There are some levers you and I can pull in determining how much data we give up, 
But there are some things that we simply don't get to choose. Things like being tracked around by the Facebook pixel around the internet. We don't really get to opt out of that very much. Can you define that really quick? Because for a lot of people, you just said Facebook pixel and they're like the, the what? Facebook pixel is like a teensy tiny bit of code that exists in, I forget the percentage, it's over half of commerce websites and internet websites generally. It's a lot. It's a little piece of code that connects your Facebook profile, your Facebook account to your browsing history across the web. So without getting super technical, A, because it's been a long time since I've read up on the technicalities of the Facebook pixel, and also B, it's just not super relevant. Virtually, this is what it means. When you go to Amazon or you go to some other, I don't know every website that has it. So you go to LL Bean or you go to Nike.com and you're browsing for clothing or something to buy for your mom for her birthday coming up. You are being tracked by the Facebook pixel, even on these non-Facebook websites. So that if you've ever gone back to Facebook or Instagram, they're owned by the same company, Meta, obviously, you go back to these websites and these social media platforms, and you're served ads for these products, you might be like, whoa, that's kind of weird, or that's kind of creepy or whatever. And you might wonder how Facebook knows you were looking at that piece of jewelry on Amazon. And it's because the Facebook pixel exists outside of Facebook. So Facebook and many social media platforms, though Facebook is the most egregious and well-known for this, not only track your activity and gather data on you on their platform, they have the ability in some form and fashion to gather data on you on other platforms as well. And this just goes back to, we are not the customers of Facebook. We are the product. And by harvesting our data, our data is then sold anonymously, theoretically, to these platforms like Amazon or other commerce outlets that pay Facebook to market their products to us based on the fact that we've already visited the website, perhaps had an item in cart, et cetera. I think this is important because you used a metaphor just a second ago and said, hey, would you allow someone to put a camera inside your house and watch you all the time? It's hard to describe why that is such an invasion of our sense of sacred space. Like this is my space and you can't <laughs> enter into it. There's something that's deeply and profoundly wrong about it that's hard to describe. And so it might to some people though sound like that's ridiculous. Like that's not what Facebook is doing. Sure, I don't want a camera in my house, but that's not what they're doing. And the point that you're making right now is no, they actually are. I mean, you say 50% of websites and I think what people have to hear is 50% of total websites, those 50% are the websites that people go to. <laughs> the other 50% of the websites that most people don't spend much time on. And I think it was kind of a revelation for people, even if they have iPhones, the first time you got into an app and you got that weird notification that said, hey, this app would like to track you across apps. And I know a lot of people are like, wait a second, what? Facebook is tracking me across apps? Yes, in other words, they're looking at what you're doing on Google Maps and Apple Maps and all these different places, and they're adding that to their cache of data. And so the more you live your life online, which all of us do, the more it really is like having not just a camera, but a artificial intelligence camera that records every bit of data and information about you to create a model of you. And I do think there's something disturbing about that. Why does that invasion of privacy matter? That's frankly, one of the hardest things to argue is why it matters. Because a lot of people don't care. They simply don't care about giving up this data. I should tell a story. And this is more of a human story than it is a social media company story. So this is just an example. My friend gave birth to twin boys a few years ago. They were both born prematurely, as sometimes twins are. They spent some time in the NICU, the neonatal ICU, to be taken care of as they were a month or two early. And she chronicled their journey through the NICU on Instagram to keep family and friends updated, 
and that sort of thing. Eventually, my friend was alerted to a woman who set up an Instagram account and used the pictures of my friend's children claiming that they were her own and setting up a GoFundMe to pay for their hospital bills. Now, obviously, this isn't happening to everyone, but my friend who I'm talking about, who I'm describing, is not famous, well-known. I think she maybe had a 1,000 Instagram followers. It's not like she was targeted because of her notoriety, nor, in my view, was she really like sharing an inappropriate level of information. You know, it's not like she was like sharing her newborn's birth certificates or something like that. She was just sharing their journey and their story going through that NICU but she was taken advantage of. And worse, I mean, her kids were taken advantage of. I don't think my friend did anything wrong. I think she simply used social media the way it was meant to be used, which is kind of the core of the problem in my mind, is that she was using the platform the way it's meant to be used, and she was taken advantage of as a result. I think my biggest problem is baked into these platforms is a draw to self-expression that can so easily turn into offering ourselves up and kind of leading us to prey on ourselves or leading others to easily prey on us. And I think to get to like a deeper level, I think when we give up privacy, like we so often do on the internet, there's a dehumanizing effect that takes place. There's a really great book uh, called Lurking. The subtitle is perfect. And it's a really great description of what goes on in the book. The subtitle is How a Person Became a User. And to me, that is a perfect, not even sentence, like a phrase encapsulation of what I think is wrong with the privacy violations and data harvesting that takes place on social media is in the eyes of Facebook and other ad revenue companies like it on the internet, our humanity is a distraction. Our humanity is an obstacle. Our humanity is a problem. These ad revenue generators need to set our humanity aside. Our thoughts, our feelings, that which makes us uniquely human sort of gets in the way of the hard data that's being sapped or tapped for revenue to the tens of billions of dollars a quarter, or sometimes much more than that per year. And so I think there's a dehumanizing effect that happens. It's often said that data is the new oil. And I think that's true to some extent. I think there's a lot of validity to that. And what that means to us is that we're the oil wells. It's often said in another little quip or truism regarding social media is that if it's free, you're the product. And what I say in the book and what I've said regularly is, no, it's actually worse than that. We are not the product. We just get in the way of the companies generating ad revenue. Our data is the product. So we and our thoughts and feelings and hopes and dreams are chaff. It's how our thoughts and feelings and hopes and dreams express themselves in sellable action through things that we're searching for that we want to buy or the house that we might want to move into or the degree we're going to finally go get. It's how our hopes and dreams and feelings express themselves that are really the product that are sort of harvested for revenues we've never seen literally in the history of mankind. And so I think we should be cognizant of the sort of dehumanization that can take place when we are seen as little more than data wells to be tapped for ad revenue. So on the one hand, you use the example of someone stealing someone's story to show that one of the problems with a lack of privacy is that you lose ownership of yourself. You're giving something of yourself away in that self-expression and that's meaningful. And obviously someone can come along and steal it. Now, you know, Facebook, Meta, they didn't steal that person's story. Someone else did it. But your point is, hey, this is how the thing is structured, is for you to give of yourself. And then that leads to the second step of saying, effectively, you're turning human beings into oil wells, which does sound really dehumanizing. Like there's 
something that is fundamentally wrong about treating people like users as something that is subhuman. I am curious, though, because, you know, if, if you read people like Shoshana Zuboff in her book, Surveillance Capitalism, one of her cases for why we should care about our data being captured by these companies is, and this is going to sound creepy and don't think I'm doing conspiracy theory stuff, but it's behavior control, which is the more data I give away to these massive algorithmic machines, I mean, nodes of machines interconnected, crunching the data that I've given them, the more of that I give away, the better those machines get at manipulating my behavior, telling me what to buy, telling me what to think, telling me how to be. And I think this rubs against people because they think I'm a free individual and a machine couldn't possibly be smarter than I am and convince me to buy things and do things. But I just want you to weigh in there. I mean, do you think that AI is shaping people's behavior? Oh, there's no question. I don't think it. Anybody who studies this stuff knows it. It's happening. Social media platforms are designed to be used as much as possible. So the only evidence we need to see, AI sounds like creepy and futuristic, but it's just really complicated math. Like it's not like they're like literal robots controlling our minds. It's just mathematical (laughs) equations that are being used to shape our psychology. But they're intelligent algorithms, right? They're changing and editing themselves to accomplish a goal, which is selling your information to advertisers who want you to buy their stuff. Yeah, that's right. But they are designed by humans. Now, very much so, they've become a sort of Frankenstein's monster in that engineers within social media companies will say they don't quite understand how these things work that they create. They set off a reaction And there continue to be chain reactions following the initial creation that so many of these software engineers and behavioral psychologists that work for these companies, they kind of start the process. And these platforms have sort of morphed to the fact that a lot of times, like I've read kind of leaked documents from Facebook or Twitter even, that you'll have employees recorded as saying, yeah, we don't really know why (laughs) the algorithm or the artificial intelligence, the machine learning platforms that we've created, we don't really know why they're changing and doing this. And we're trying to figure it out. And it's like, we might have a problem here. That's the other thing that we need to be reminded of, or maybe recognize if we've never known it before, is that I would go as far to say some of the smartest behavioral psychologists in the world are employed at these social media companies. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, I hope people heard that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not just a bunch of coders and techies. You have Sean Parker. So if you've ever seen The Social Network, Sean Parker is Justin Timberlake in The Social Network, the movie about the beginning of Facebook. So the character that Justin Timberlake plays. By the way, I want Justin Timberlake to play my character. I know, seriously. That's a nice compliment. And they don't really look alike. Like I get why they picked Justin Timberlake because the hair was kind of similar and stuff. But so he was the first president of Facebook and he really helped Facebook kind of scale and get off the ground in a lot of the early days. He also started Napster. So I thought it was kind of ironic that they picked a musician to play the guy who started Napster, but that's another conversation. So back in 2017, he did an interview with Mike Allen of Axios. Axios was actually just getting started at the time. And he said this in his interview with Mike Allen of Axios, Sean Parker, first president of Facebook. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors, the creators, it's me, Mark Zuckerberg, Kevin Seistrom on Instagram. It's all of these people. We understood this consciously and we did it anyway. 
Now, this is Sean Parker kind of regretting the monster that he's contributed to and created, got off the ground over almost two decades ago. And I think that's what we have to realize is going on, is these platforms are created to get us to spend as much time on them as possible. So the math, the AI, the machine learning that's at the core of them is not only trying to get us to click and buy, they're also trying to keep us looking at them, trying to keep our eyes on them. And the only evidence you need to see that our behavior is being modified is not only that internet company revenues are way up because these ads are working, but also our time on these platforms are way up. And as much as selling us things is an objective of this artificial intelligence, keeping our attention is as much an objective. So if you just watch social media time online over the years, you can see that steadily increase, which I think is just the easiest evidence you would need to know that it's working. You just ask yourself a question. Are the marketing teams of today's biggest consumer good companies, are they run by idiots? And if the answer to that question is no, then you have to ask, why are they spending the vast majority of their money on these platforms? Answer, it works. They can control your behavior. They can alter your behavior. And it's disturbing to admit, but I think actually as Christians, we have the resources to come in and say, oh no, this makes perfect sense. We understand that as a result of the fall, we in our hearts are easily manipulated by our desires. We're easily manipulated by external forces and powers. And we literally have a term, you know, the world, (laughs) systems and structures that are able to control and alter human behavior. So we have categories for these things. And yet I find that amongst many Christians, I think out of pride, we resist the notion that my eye phone controls me. Now you kind of got into a second thing here, which is if they want to sell us these ads, they have to keep us on their platforms. And so that's a whole different question, right? So on the one hand, you're gathering all my data, you're selling it off to people so that they can manipulate my behavior. And then they say, hey, we've got to keep you on our platform so that we can sell you more ads and collect more data. So how does that happen? How do these companies, Meta, Google, how do they keep us on their platforms? Let me say first, before we move on from like the marketing and sales piece, I don't think it's objectively and totally wrong to like use social media for marketing. I don't want to say that like it's a morally corrupt enterprise. I think my biggest concern is that so many of us users don't recognize what's happening to us. Does that make sense? Like I'm sure the company that I work for, Moody Publishers, I'm sure we use Facebook ads to try to help people find books that they would find helpful based on their interests and things like that. Oh yeah, we use Facebook ads. Yeah. But I do think that the social media companies have been in the wrong for a number of years for not more clearly disclosing and making it easy for people to decide what privacy knobs they want to turn on or off. And so I think that's one of my biggest concerns. It's not like I don't think the whole you should never use social media to advertise. Like I don't think it's objectively wrong. But I do think that there's a sort of being taken advantage of that's been happening, a sort of deception. The whole enterprise needs to be shoved more into the light and not done in such a sort of shadowy way. So let me just be clear on that. I strongly agree with everything that you just said. I want to make sure that people are tracking what you also said, which is, hey, here's all I want. I want people to be educated. So I want people to know what's happening with their data, and I want them to have control over it. And that's a massive problem, because even in the moments where Facebook and Google and all these other companies have come along and given people, quote unquote, privacy rights, it's been proven time and time again that you can think you're turning the faucet off and Facebook just leaves the faucet on. (laughs) That's exactly right. And so you can't even trust these companies. They're deceptive down to their core. And I know that sounds really cynical. Just once you start reading, you really can't escape. Like, that's what it is. But let's get back to the platforms. How do they keep us on these platforms? What's the strategy for keeping us on? And what do you think that's causing? Yeah. So this goes more from the sort of code and AI side. This is certainly used to keep us on the platforms to more of the behavioral psychology side. So 
upfront, I'm not a psychologist. So whatever I say here has been recited from things that I've read from people much smarter than me on these subjects. But generally speaking, it's what Sean Parker described. You get on a social media platform. As soon as you download the platform onto your phone, even if you've had an account, you know, you sign in, they say you want to turn on notifications so you can see when all your friends comment or message. Well, of course, like, why wouldn't I turn on notifications? So I don't know what the percentage is, but a high percentage of people always, you know, hit allow for notifications. Let's say it's Instagram. You hop on Instagram and you want to share a story and it's like, hey, you want to share your location with Instagram? And so you say, yeah, I'm going to, because I want to tell people like where I'm at in my Instagram story. So I'm going to share my location and I'm going to give them access to all my library photos. And then you go on, you post your story or your photo, whatever. And then because you've turned on notifications, however popular you are, or in a broken view, however valuable you are, as I fear we've kind of come to this point, you get little pings of vibrates of your phone. If you have your sound on, you get sounds that could sound like you've just scored a coin in a video game, depending on how you set up these sort of reward systems, if you will, you get a buzz, you get a sound notification or an audible notification. You go to your phone, you see this red eight above your, wow, eight people responded to my Instagram story. That's amazing. I usually only get like three responses in the first 30 minutes. All of these things are brain signals. You and I have connected before of our love for playing video games. I'm still working through the one you got me, by the way, it's a mammoth game and it's crazy. You gave that to me. But anyone who understands video games understands the sort of like gamification idea that like you go on these quests, you get rewards, you feel satisfied because you fulfilled an obligation. And social media really plays into that idea, the sort of gamification of attention, where you post something, you get rewarded with visual feedback, audible feedback, social feedback. And it's this loop that takes place where the apps will ping you. If you're like, hey, you haven't posted in a while. Have you considered posting? I've gotten a notification from Facebook recently that's like, hey, such and so just posted a new story. What's your reaction? I'm like, why do you care? (laughs) Why do I have to have a reaction? I don't feel anything about what this person posted. I haven't talked to that person in six years, let alone clicked on any of their Facebook stuff. It's like a casino in your pocket. And all of a sudden, the casino that you've ignored for months and months on end, the mater d' comes out and finds you like, hey, you want to come back? You interested in rolling the dice again? Yeah, right. Here's a free night. How they keep us on is by these sort of engagement and social feedback loops. Here's the thing. This ties into the privacy conversation because in order for us as users to be valuable to the social media platforms, we have to express ourselves. Social media platforms, I've never read this, but I'm guessing their enemy, the person they hate is the person who uses social media, like consumes, but never creates. Because if you never post to Instagram, you never post to Twitter, they can learn a lot from you based on what you consume, but they could learn a whole lot more from you if you create, if you post. And so the more we post, the more we express ourselves, the more information we're giving. And in return, we don't get paid money, we get paid attention. This is why I frequently say attention is the currency of the social internet. So we are the employees of Facebook and Instagram and all these others because we generate their content for them that they then sell ads on. It's almost like we work for a news company like the New York Times. (laughs) Yeah. But instead of writing 800 word articles, we write 200 word Facebook posts with a photo of our family. And then Facebook sells ads on that content. And we get paid not $5 because we got 300 comments. We get paid in 300 comments, which then makes us feel good and makes us want to go back and do it again. And so there are a whole lot of analogies that have been used, but yeah, that's how it works. Okay, well, 
we'll get back to the show in a second. Hey, when we started this podcast, we had this theory we were going to have a dissent page in which we were going to interact with people who disagreed with us, but we've never been able to get it off the ground. So could you help us? Yeah, just tell us how you disagree. I mean, I've asked so many people, hey, here's this page. Go tell us how you disagree. And no one will tell us how they disagree, even though I know they do. Now, I know it takes a little bit of time to write a dissent, but if you do it, we may share that in an upcoming newsletter. So you can reach all of our listeners who heard all of the awful things that we said and tell them all the ways we're wrong. Isn't that fun? It's your opportunity to tell everybody what idiots we are. And here's the deal. I promise that I will be charitable. In other words, we don't want to embarrass you or try to dunk on you. We want to interact with you. Now, I don't know what Patrick will do to you, but I promise, I promise I'll have velvet gloves on. So click the link in the show notes if you disagree with what we're saying or what we've said in the past and share your dissent. Otherwise, we're going to kill this whole dissent thing. So please help revive it. When you say Facebook sells ads on your content, that's going to confuse some people. They think, wait, I've never seen Facebook post an ad on what I wrote. What are you talking about? So explain what you mean by that. Yeah, what I mean is that interspersed across your entire Facebook feed, you're coming across your sister posting a picture of her family over a holiday. Then you're coming across a really interesting article that your pastor shared. Then you're coming across a neighbor who's looking for their dog. And then you come across an Amazon ad for that jewelry that you were searching for yesterday. And then you come across another piece of content and then maybe another ad for that meal prep service that you were looking into last week when you're like, man, I really got to get some help making these meals or whatever. So how ads are sold on our content is not that there's like a video ad within our post about our family vacation, but Our content is why people come to Facebook. The content you and I share, that's what draws people into Facebook. And the more we create content, the more Facebook is able to sell ads to these companies that are trying to get people to click and then spend money. So I think like if we all stopped creating content on Facebook, Facebook wouldn't be able to sell ads because nobody would go to Facebook. So we are kind of the meal, if you will, that gets people in the door. And then Facebook comes through and is sliding ads interspersed in between all of the interesting content that people actually come to. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's take one step further, though, because one way that these platforms keep people engaged and on them is by giving what they predict to be via the algorithm engaging content, <laughs> content that the user is interested in seeing, will like, will comment on, will watch through if it's a video that they'll spend time looking at, if it's a photo or reading, if it's a tweet. And so part of what the algorithm is trying to do is also guess, hey, of all the people that you follow, what's the bit or piece of content that's going to keep you the most engaged? And this also has changed the face of our social media. So maybe share how that's changing. These are often called recommendation algorithms. So like on Facebook, it's the main feed. Instagram, they've recently resurrected their chronological feed. See, these are the subtle design choices. So most people, I think, would agree that they would prefer chronological feeds on every social media platform, meaning you see the most recent piece of content, the second most recent piece of content, the third, et cetera. However, that does make it hard for advertising for a number of reasons that we don't have to get into. It's easier for these platforms to insert ads if you don't feel like you're reading a timeline of the latest content because it doesn't feel unnatural. But Instagram, just as another small design thing, you have to change actively to the chronological feed. It is not the default. The algorithmically 
decided feed is the default. The same goes for Twitter. Twitter has an algorithmic feed and a chronological feed. And the way they get you into this is they'll ask you, like, which one do you want? Do you want the one that's chronological or the one that's going to give you content that you'll be interested in? (laughs) The best. The best. It's like the best tweets or the latest tweets. I want the latest tweets. I can decide which ones are the best. I don't need you to decide which ones are the best. But like on YouTube, YouTube is a social media platform. A lot of people don't think of YouTube that way. It very much is a social media platform. It's recommendation algorithm is just called like, watch this video next. Theirs is perhaps one of the most notorious because it has been routinely showed in a number of studies that the YouTube recommendation algorithm has very quickly and easily spiraled people into different kinds of extremism, whether political, religious, or otherwise. The YouTube recommendation algorithm is among many until TikTok came around considered to be the most powerful. YouTube is the best in the eyes of many people who study these things at keeping people on their platform by saying, hey, you just watched that video? How about you watch this one next? TikTok is now the kind of king of that in the eyes of many. And having shorter form video helps with that. Like when you are scrolling on Facebook, you may not know this if you're listening. I don't know how in tune you are with how social media works, but if you just stop scrolling for three seconds on a piece of content, Maybe you're sitting next to your wife on the couch and you just stop scrolling over a family photo from your aunt from the cookout last weekend. And you just started talking to your wife because you're having a conversation. Well, in Facebook's mind, you just expressed interest in that content because you stopped scrolling over it for three seconds. That is actually communicated to the algorithm, to Facebook that, hey, Chris likes seeing content from his aunt that has people in it because they know what's in these photos. Make sure to serve more family photos from Chris's aunt to Chris whenever possible. The algorithm learns these things. And then you could see how this could very quickly become destructive if people are regularly engaging with content that is problematic in any number of ways. Part of this is like a human heart problem. It turns out that if you're a teenage girl, like most teenage girls, you might feel dissatisfied with your body. And because you feel dissatisfied, you might find yourself fixating on Instagram accounts of beautiful people who have bodies that you wish you could have. And then Instagram starts giving you more of it, which explains why it's probably causing serious eating disorders amongst our teenage community, which Instagram knew for a fact and just ignored because they don't care about teenage girls. So this is part of the darkness here, right? It's the exact same thing with the outrage that's happened. We have all of this outrage that's happening on social media because people love feeling outraged. <laughs> we, we enjoy being angry. Now, this kind of leads me to an interesting question. I was talking to Daryl Eves, and he's kind of a YouTube guru. He's a guy who's launched a lot of big YouTube guys, and he's very much so a YouTube defender and apologist. So I wanted to press him a little bit on some of these questions. And I asked him, hey, you know, doesn't YouTube end up serving content that fuels outrage, that fuels some of our worst impulses? And he basically said, oh, no, no, it doesn't. And I'm like, okay, well, I think that's wrong. So help me understand. He goes, no, the algorithm just gives you what you want. So if you're getting a bunch of outraged content, or you're getting a bunch of sexually explicit content, or you're getting a bunch of whatever it is that you think's bad, That's not because the algorithm is trying to make you do that. It's because of what you watch and you chose. So you need to take responsibility for what you watch. If you get nasty stuff online, that's what you're clicking. That's what you're deserving. That's what you're winning for yourself. Now, I just want to know, like, how do you respond to that argument? So I think Daryl's right to a degree. Now, I would pull back because there have been a handful of people in the past that I've consulted with. I do some social media consulting with ministries and other organizations And I've had some people say to me, hey, I don't know if we really want to use YouTube because some of the ads I've gotten when I'm watching YouTube are kind of like suggestive and kind of like maybe inappropriate. And I'm like, well, there's something you should know about that is a lot of times like YouTube ads are determined 
on your past browsing history or what you've shown interest in. So if you're getting sketchy YouTube ads, honestly, that's more reflective of you probably than like YouTube as a platform, because that is true to some extent. Like there are a number of factors that come into in the same way that Facebook can track you to Amazon and try to sell you the product that you put in your cart, it could track you to 8.4 million websites. So I'm sure that's not 50%, but it's going to be the most popular ones. It's going to be the 8.4 million most popular ones. That's from 2018. So I'm sure it's even more by this point. I think Daryl is right to some extent that once the snowball gets rolling, you are kind of responsible for keeping it rolling. However, if Daryl would sit here and say, YouTube does not promote sensational or explicit content at all, he's dead wrong. Because if you started a new YouTube account today that had no browsing history you know, on a computer you've never had and a Google account you've never had, had no data for Google to tap into at all, they would give you pictures of scantily clad girls. They would give you probably some Mr. Beast videos that have gotten tons of views. They would give you... By the way, Daryl Eve started Mr. Beast, so there you go. He did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling Daryl might take a little bit more credit for it than he should, but YouTube would serve you a nice spread of content, some of which would not be objectionable, all of which is going to be sensational in some way. And so I agree that we shouldn't pin the outrage problem on social media because we love outrage. I think in our sin, we love conflict because we're cowards. We would rather experience conflict mediated by a screen than with our fists and with our faces one up against each other. So I do think that we bear some blame for that. However, the platforms are designed to deliver us more deeply into what we want, not deliver us from what we want. And so I think when we use social media and we find ourselves going down rabbit holes, whether it's some wacky conspiracy theory or some sexually explicit situation or whatever, the platforms are designed to give us more of what we've indicated that we like. And so we should recognize that we have to take into our own hands our spiritual wellness, our emotional wellness, and the platforms are not going to look out for us. They don't care about us. And I think a clear correlation between Instagram use and eating disorders among teenage girls, them ignoring that data and kind of just shelving it, I think is a perfect example. I think you're making a lot of great points. And I agree with you. There's some of what Daryl said that's true. And I always kind of laugh. When we first went onto YouTube, I had a lot of people say, hey, you shouldn't do that because of all the you know pornographic material. And I was just too nice to be like, yeah, that's a you problem. Um <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about that. But here's the bigger thing. It's naive to think that YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, they're not just collecting data on you and building a model of you. They are also building a model of our population. And so they're very aware that, you know what, sexually explicit content, outrageous content, that's the stuff that most people like. And so even if you're doing everything you can to just watch, you know, nerdy science videos, YouTube's going to keep giving you little drips and drops of, oh, but here's a nerdy science video with a girl dressed like this, or here's a nerdy science video video where it swerves off real quickly into some outrageous COVID conspiracy because it knows and it's not interested in you. It's not interested in the truth. It's interested in keeping your eyes on the platform. That's what we have to remember. That's all that it fundamentally cares about. I want to close down our conversation by, I think, getting into an area that you and I disagree on, but maybe we disagree on it less than I thought. I want to get practical and talk about what do we do to change this? And I realize we could talk a lot about what you could do personally, and I'd actually just recommend someone pick up your book because you give a lot of great personal suggestions. But I want to change the focus to Christian organizations, Christian media groups, whether that's churches or it's things like what we're doing with Truth Over Tribe and how we interact with these social media platforms. I am of a mind that in some sense... And I don't want to overdo the war metaphor, but in some sense, we, we are in a war. And this is a biblical metaphor for people's hearts and minds to bring people to know who Jesus is and love him more. And we don't get to choose the Babylon we live in. We just live in it. 
And so part of living in this digital Babylon, this digital moment, to my mind, means I didn't set the terms of engagement. I don't get to pick whether or not there's such a thing as a Facebook pixel. I just have to live in that world. And so it seems to me that the best thing the church can do is actually understand how those things work and use them. Use every tool that the person who's not a Christian is going to use, at the New York Times or the Daily Wire, whatever it is, all these sites that are trying to change people's hearts and minds, use all the exact same toolbox that they have. Use the exact same tools to try to win people to the truth, to win people to Jesus. Use our ad spend to win people to Jesus. Everything that you mentioned. And so I'm curious, am I crazy, Chris? Have I just given over to the dark side? (laughs) So yeah, you're right. We do disagree on this probably less than you thought. And this is a tension I've had lived with my whole career because I've worked in digital content for Christian organizations my whole career. I spent seven years at Lifeway Christian Resources, which at the time was one of the largest Christian publishers in the world, running some digital marketing and eventually social media for them. And then I've spent the last two years, roughly, at Moody Publishers doing similar things. I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on all of the companies we just described, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably. And I've always wrestled with this because I have a problem with the system. I have a problem with what you described as like the terms of engagement, the rules of engagement. I have a problem with all of it. However, I feel the same way you do in that I think one of the best ways to use these broken tools is to use them to point to the only solution for all of our brokenness. I wrote a book about the ills of social media, and yet I have to post on social media about it. Otherwise, it won't ever sell any copies. And so (laughs) I've wrestled with that even with my own book, right? And like I've not taken out Facebook ads for my book, but I've had to talk about it and had to do a lot of things that at one point were very uncomfortable for me. But I don't think that having a problem with the system means we aren't allowed to ever use the system. I don't think it's hypocritical to say social media's economy is broken, but... I'm going to use this broken economy to try to do some good with it. Like, I think that's okay, especially in my work, because so much of what I am doing in using this broken economy, this broken system of social media is to try to like free people from it. You know, it's almost like going to the bar to help people with alcoholism or something like that. Like, I think you and I are probably in a little bit more agreement than you would even have thought. Here's what I would say. I think social media can be used for redemptive purposes. I do struggle with and question whether or not social media platforms can themselves be redeemed. Do you see the dichotomy here? I think that we can use these very broken and I would say irreparable tools to point people to good, to point people to the gospel, to point people to serving in their communities, to helping those who need help. Like I think that we can use these very, very broken tools for a lot of good, and we should in every way that we can. However, I think that social media as an institution, as a tool, is beyond repair and irreparably broken as long as it depends on ad revenue to function. Some people would say that social media is a neutral tool. I vehemently disagree with that. I used to say that myself. I vehemently disagree that social media is a neutral tool. I think that we have to intentionally use social media for good in order to use it for any good at all. And so I don't think you can passively use social media and have it result in global net good. I think you have to be very intentional because otherwise I do think it devolves both because of the platforms themselves and because of human nature. Without intentionality, social media devolves into all the problems we see with it today. And so that's what I would say is I have no problem with doing everything we can to use these platforms for good. 
But at the same time, I want to make sure that we all keep in mind that these are very broken tools that are not looking out for our best interests. And sometimes actively work against our best interests. And people talk about censorship or certain limitations on things that Christians believe that may be classified as hate speech. So we should just recognize that these tools can help us accomplish our purposes, but they are no friend to us. You've actually convinced me. I used to be in the social media as a neutral tool camp and you and I started talking more and you made a really good point. You said, look, these things have been designed by some of the most intelligent people literally in the world. They have Ivy League educations. They are the best and the brightest minds and they didn't design it without a purpose. And so I've thought about it like this, like a gun, right? Like a gun has a real purpose and it's to kill animals or to kill people. And of course, you have to be pretty intentional to go take that gun out and use it at target practice, but no one would have ever invented a gun to just go do target practice. That wasn't what it was invented for. I have to be very intentional not to use it in the pattern it was invented to be used. <laughs> and I think that's the right metaphor here for this is that it's not neutral. This is designed to be used in a way that is in many ways destructive, but we don't have a choice on some level about whether or not we participate in it. I mean, some people can, but gosh, you know, I would mourn the day that Christians all said we're all going to pull out of social media and leave this thing to itself. And I think this tension is even present in the New Testament. Like when you think about the way the book of Revelation, it's a very black and white book, views the economic system of ancient Rome and it describes it as kind of this super beast dragon that's eating and destroying and consuming all people. And it's a very black and white picture, which we've kind of laid out in a similar way, like, hey, look, social media is kind of the super beast. It is this monster that's eating and devouring people. And yet, in the same breath, you can go to the letters of Paul, where he's clearly encouraging people to participate in that economy with excellence, but doing it in a way that resists the idolatry, which is nascent, which is present in it. And so maybe that is what it comes down to, both individuals resisting on their own and organizations, I would say like our own, that say, hey, we're going to learn how to use these tools like the best of them, but we're going to use them for good purposes. We're not going to intentionally try to manipulate, abuse, or use people. Like We want to point people towards what's true, what's good, and what's noble. And maybe that is our path forward. I mean, would you agree with that? Like, Can we walk out in agreement? Yeah, totally. I think the key word that might help is subversion. Mm, that's good. I've used an illustration that's kind of not great, but it helps me think about it. It's like we were all given a hammer. And when you think of a hammer, you think of you used to build a house or you know fix something. I have a fence in my backyard that's very old wooden fence, and I regularly have to use a hammer or a drill to get the boards back in and keep them from falling out from the wind or whatever. But it's almost like we've been given a hammer. It's like, oh, it's the tool except the sharp side is like way sharper and like way bigger. And the dull side that you used to like hammer in nails and like build is kind of like dull and doesn't work very well. It's like, yeah, we've been given a tool, but like it's kind of bent toward a certain way. And so I think as long as we recognize these things and recognize brokenness in our own hearts, both the brokenness of the tool and the brokenness of our own hearts, I think we can intentionally use these things in a sort of subversive way and say, I'm going to make sure not to get addicted to these platforms, use them in sensational ways that just grab as many eyeballs as possible to the detriment of the people on the other side of the screen. I'm not going to use them the way they were meant to be used, but I'm going to use them in a way that is as redemptive as possible. I think it's like being a light in the darkness, being in the world, but not of it. I think it really wraps up all those sort of metaphors and images that are used in scripture that we can use these things we just shouldn't be used by them. Yeah, that's great. Well, Chris, it's been awesome having you on the show. Would you mind saying a word of prayer for our listeners? Of course. Yeah, I would love to. Father, I thank you for this day you've given us, Lord. I pray that throughout our days and weeks ahead, as we maybe evaluate our relationship with social media, whether that's because of listening to a podcast like this, 
maybe reading a book that we came across about social media, or even just as we see how it kind of invades and weaves itself into every aspect of our lives. Father, I pray that you would let us give ourselves grace as we evaluate our relationship with social media. Help us not be legalistic with ourselves. Help us to not be hateful and be like, oh, I hate these platforms. They're so bad. Or, or I hate myself for caring so much about what I think, what people say about me on Instagram. Lord, help us give ourselves grace, but also give us a good view of ourselves. Give us a wise, a clear view. Uh, help us to discern and see if we do have an unhealthy relationship with these platforms, whatever platforms we prefer. And help us also, Lord, as we consider our relationship with social media, help us to be open and have conversations with friends about our relationship with social media. Help us to be willing to have accountability and find friends who can call us out if we're acting foolish or maybe sharing too much. Uh, Lord, just help us to be careful. Help us to consider that all things are meant for us to glorify you and to become more like your son, Jesus, and to share him with others. And so just give us a heart of intentionality as we use these tools, which can so easily influence us sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Uh, just help us to be wise and considerate, not only of others, but also of ourselves and of our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for all good gifts you've given us and help us to love each other better today. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Chris. It's been a lot of fun talking with you as always. And I want to encourage anybody who's listening to this to go pick up your book, Terms of Service. When it came out, I texted you, I think, and said, hey, you somehow managed to write a book that is technical without being academic. You know, you hit that tightrope of, I think, presenting these ideas in a really accessible way and also being really practical at times, helping people reflect on how do I live this out just in my personal life? How do I challenge my own social media use in my personal life? So that's Terms of Service. Go pick up the book. Thanks again for being on the show, Chris. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.